Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's a joy and a privilege to have as a guest Dr. Mark Jansen. Mark's an assistant professor of history at Louisiana College, and he's a research associate with the Lanier Center for Archaeology at Lipscomb University. Mark's loved history for as long as he can remember, particularly ancient history and biblical history. He also serves as the deputy director at the Karnak Great Hypostyle Hall Project, an epigraphic mission at Karnak Temple in Lexor, Egypt. Mark is a bona fide, legit archaeologist, and his research interests include Egyptian history and culture, Egyptian epigraphy, and for our purposes today, the historicity of the Exodus and the intersection of archaeology and biblical studies. He's the editor of a book that, which is the reason I invited him on to the podcast, The Exodus, or Five Views on the Exodus, Historicity, Chronology, and Theological Implications. And he's the co-host of a podcast on script, The Biblical World. You can see the show notes for all of those resources and also for Mark's recommendation. Let's jump into the show. Hey, Mark, welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be here. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the book that you edited, The Exodus, histor- uh, Five Views on the Exodus, Historicity, Chronology, and Theological Implications. Uh, but before we jump into to that, and it's going to be a great conversation, I always like to give folks an opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, their journey, their spiritual journey, what led you to becoming a person that was interested in archaeology and uh, in teaching at a Christian liberal arts college. Well, uh, I can go way back for some of this. So for like the Old Testament, that was something I loved even as a little boy. And I could credit my grandma in a way. I remember I was in Bible quiz and my parents were on vacation and I was staying with her and she would not let me not know the answers to these things. And so like, I remember I didn't really care for some reason if my parents were like, "Uh, he doesn't know that. But the idea that grandma would be disappointed couldn't handle that. So I actually, that was, I was like, that's the moment I'm like, I really want to get good at this. Um, and then from there, I just always loved the history and ancient history. Um, and then to fast forward to the archaeology and Egyptology part of the answer here, I had gotten a, a degree in biblical languages, and then I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and I thought I was going to do an MA in Old Testament. And I took one class with Jim Hoffmeyer, on archaeology as an elective, my first semester, I was blown away by all the things he could do. The little Bible college I went to, not to try to be too hard on it, but it was kind of had that fear of archaeology that you get sometimes amongst like pastors and pastoral training where it's all it's just going to be too skeptical about the Bible and things like that. And uh, Dr. Hoffmeyer's class showed me how well archaeology can actually contextualize scripture. Yes, it challenges our interpretations some, but it also confirms us confirms them and encourages us and I just loved it and ended up uh, doing hieroglyphs with him and that set me on a course to do uh, Egyptology and ancient Egyptian history for my PhD and uh, just knowing there are very very few committed evangelical Egyptologists was another uh, factor for me I mean a lot of Egyptologists they just don't want to even touch the exodus like no thanks not wading into those troubled waters uh, yet a lot of the biblical scholars, as you're aware, are getting increasingly skeptical of it. But I think there's a, a, a lot of people who are staunchly opinionated who don't actually know the, the Egyptology really or the archaeology all that well. And it's, their view is really just based on old documentary hypothesis. And so I wanted to help that cause too. 
You know, we just look at the scriptures. It's so uh, the scriptures are clear all the way through the Old Testament, and even a lot of the New Testament sort of tells even the story of Jesus is kind of a retelling of the Exodus. Uh, you have Isaiah mm -hmm. sort of retells the exile through the Exodus. We know I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All these the, it's mm -hmm. the consistent testimony, and a lot of folks are surprised that it's even controversial whether or not the exodus from egypt uh, really happened and i'll put really in quotations and obviously we can get down in the weeds on <laughs> on uh, historiography and stuff i don't really know if we really have time or folks are going to want us hear about that but what what makes the exodus controversial from a historical perspective and when somebody says there's no evidence for the exodus and a christian just goes well it's in the bible so i mean how, how do you answer that that there's no evidence is that really true uh, I think it probably comes down to, to try to keep it from getting out of hand in my answer here, three <laughs> things. Yeah. There is a perceived lack of substantiating archaeological evidence from Egypt and Sinai. So people are told, oh, there's no evidence from Egypt of Moses or of the Exodus. And then the conclusion is, therefore, it must be fiction. Uh, we don't have direct physical evidence, therefore, it must be fictitious. And we can talk more about that as well as we go. But then, then the second thing I think is the, the accounts are just viewed as simple myth or as distorted like cultural memory as they tell it down through the generations. They just keep elaborating and then you get this tangled web that you can never you know, actually untangle. And therefore, we might as well just assume it's kind of a skeptical stance in a lot of ways. Just assume that it's fictitious as well. Or you can go back to sort of those old theories about you know, it's hypothetically written at such a late date by Israelite priests with such a heavy theological focus, which definitely does have a theological focus, but that since it's allegedly written really late, they must not actually know what they're talking about. And since they have an agenda towards the theology, they must be getting the history wrong. And so there's these sort of three, I think, almost philosophical assumptions going in that really tend to dominate the scholarship, I think. And who have been some um, some of your favorite mentors in like telling the or in studying the history of um, of of Israel, especially with the Exodus? You mentioned James Hoffmeyer. I mean, I think I might hear even in your answer a little bit of the Proven Long Longman approach from like biblical history of Israel. Yes, not a great uh, book yeah. as well. Yeah, who are um, some of your mentors? Or so been? those those individuals for sure. And Hoffmeyer is worth even more attention in, in that he's written two books and he's revising the one even now. Uh, on this particular topic, I mean, he is the master of the data for, for the Egyptology meeting the Bible on this topic. So that's Israel and Egypt and then Israel in Sinai or ancient Israel in Sinai. And he's revising or whatever Israel and Egypt now, which is now 20 something years old, but we'll have a new version out soon, as far as I know. Um, and so anyone who really wants to look at all the Egyptisms, as we call them, in the biblical account, he's definitely your guy. And he, in turn, was influenced by another guy that has influenced me that I'm sure you'll know the name, famous Egyptologist Kenneth Kitchen, who's now, I think, in his mid-80s, um, an absolutely illustrious career. Like, if you made a Mount Rushmore of Egyptologists, he would be on it for his work on the New Kingdom and Ramesside monuments. But he's also incredibly good at dealing with biblical data as well. I mean, he's just one of these guys who mastered the whole region, not just Egypt, not just the Bible. It's uh, the breadth of his scholarship is incredible. 
Um, and his On the Reliability of the Old Testament record is, you know, it's, it's a 2003 book, but it's still pretty good. He's very sassy. It's a funny read. <laughs> At times, he, I wondered, is he too sassy for the people he wants to read this to read it? But the data, there's just a ton of it. And that, so that, that, was, would be the other, that, that would be the other one I would definitely want to give a shout out to on this topic. I, I love that book, too. And I think it is funny. He, is, he does have a, he was writing against those biblical minimalists when they were really that was the hot thing there, what, almost 20 years ago. And he is kind of sassy is the right word. So folks who really enjoy that. And it's completely accessible what he does. And he covers uh, kind of every biblical period and kind of lays out the evidence. That, uh, that's a really that's a that's a good. Book. And I, I think it's also cool just for anyone who's curious. What he does is he starts later. So he starts at like the divided monarchy where we have just a ton of collaborative evidence. To establish that the Bible is reliable, and then he works his way back. And the further back you go, the harder it is. So it's kind of a clever way to sort of build a foundation for it, too. And, and that might partly answer the second part of really the first question was, why isn't it as significant as it sounds to say that there isn't a lot of evidence or there's really almost no direct evidence for the exodus? Okay, so there's a couple of things we have to do here to unpack this, in my opinion. Um, and one of the things I want to work on down the road is the philosophy of the Exodus, and I've used that word twice. What is evidence? Right? So if we found Moses was here on a rock, right, can, you can imagine the, the polarizing reaction. Oh, that's a different Moses. Right, it's right. a common name. It's a forgery, right? What helped, happened when we had House of David? On the tell Dan stealer. So, so at, at some point we have to also think what, what are we actually looking for for evidence? What constitutes physical evidence? Um, and, and what do we make of circumstantial evidence, which I think a lot of people take to mean lesser evidence, mm -hmm. but strictly speaking, it just means we have the, this batch of evidence that requires a circumstance to explain. And so let's mostly everything else I'll probably be talking to you about in terms of evidence fits that category. Like, why is this in the biblical text if they weren't in Egypt kind of stuff that we'll get into? And so I think direct physical evidence misleads people into thinking no shred of evidence, but it's not the case. And then the, the other thing I think we have to unpack here is an Egyptology thing and understanding the broad sweep of Egyptian culture and history they don't memorialize defeat. They don't talk about it. I mean, if, you, if you're aware of ancient history and you, you're, you're a listener knows of the Battle of Kadesh, right, where Ramses fights the Hittites and he claims the god Amun-Ra saves him at the last minute and then his army shows up. He'd like outpaced his troops. He lives to fight another day. He claims it's a great victory, but he never takes any new territory. He goes home and he celebrates it on you know, 10 temple walls and texts. Like it's like unprecedented how often he references it in these grand ways. What's the largest PR campaign in ancient Egyptian history? But it tells us rather than acknowledge a stalemate, not even a defeat, just a stalemate, he spins it to a win. So I think we got to be careful expecting the same people with their ancient ideology to give us this great long report or even hint at the departure of the Hebrews. They're, to them, it's maybe not even that significant. And they're certainly not going to tell you about something potentially embarrassing. It's just not how royal propaganda worked in the ancient world. It's not how politics work today. So I think that, that explains why we don't have these direct physical evidences to, to at least some extent explains it. So why don't we just jump in? And uh, when we're talking about trying to find the uh, 
the Exodus and history, a lot of people just assume from first Kings six, one, 480 years. And it dates it from basically where Solomon builds the temple backwards. And so they end up somewhere in the 15th century. Um, just kind of frame out what the conversation really is on terms of um, potential dates for the Exodus and maybe just lay out your preferences. And uh, those of you who are listening, which is, I don't know that scholars really debate, uh, even if they mm-hmm. believe in the Exodus, that there's a pretty wide range of options within that, which sometimes is surprising. And a lot of people just get um, what hung up. They watch the Ten Commandments or even what the, the cartoon that was out or the, <laughs> the movie. And, yeah. and, and that's all 13th century. Uh, but mm-hmm. there are other options beyond that. So can you talk a little bit about what the how to frame that out and then where you fit into that conversation? Yeah. So, um, once you've established plausibility, which I, I do think we should also talk about, but yeah, we can do that first it, if you think it's more helpful too. It's whatever. Um, uh, yeah. it, it, it's either way. So okay. we can go and work chronology and then come back to plausibility. Okay. Um, but chronology is kind of the next big thing I would say that is debated. And here's where it gets frustrating. You have people who basically want there or believe that there is a, a historical exodus and then they'll fight over the chronology. Um, so there is a definite debate there. But the standard view is the 13th century view, the so-called late date. The other view that it gets brought up a lot is the 15th century. Either view puts us in the new kingdom in Egypt, so Egypt at the height of its power. Actually, both views end up having the two most powerful pharaohs ever, pretty much. In general, that's what most people would put. So like 15th century has Thutmose the third, potentially his son Amenhotep as the pharaoh of the Exodus. 13th century would be Ramses the Great. So there's an interesting theological point there, perhaps. But the 15th century view is based on 1 Kings 6.1, as you mentioned, where Solomon dedicates the temple. And he says, it says in that verse, it was 480 years after the Exodus. So based on other synchronisms with the Syrian sources and everything else, Solomon's chronology is pretty firm. You just do the math, 480 plus his, when he actually reigned in his fourth year for the temple, and voila, mid-15th century, right, for the Exodus, just math. The key point here for that date is you're taking 480 years totally literally. For the so-called late date, you have Exodus 111, which says that the Israelites built two store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Ramses is identified with no doubt whatsoever with Pi Ramses in the Egyptian, a delta city that was only used for about 150 years because the branch of the Nile actually dried up. And a fabulous Ramesside capital on a dried up Nile branch is no fabulous capital at all. So they reused the blocks and they moved the whole thing. This is great for us because it means this is the end point, right? They would have had to stop here. And so this is, this is taken as a very short window of time for an ancient city. For the Israelites to mention it, they must have been in Egypt precisely in its narrow window of use. And that's what the late date's based on. So then we have a problem here for each view that is fairly straightforward. You have to do something else with the other verse, right? So if you believe in the 15th century Exodus, you think Exodus 111 is a later editorial gloss that they just added it or something which I personally think does more damage to the text. I'm not comfortable with that. If you take, so I am a 13th century view is my view. If you take 480 years figuratively, there's actually good reasons to do so. It of course comes down to 12 times 40. 
40 being a well-known symbolic number for sort of the ideal generation or time span, but generations being defined as when, a, when you know, a child grows up and then has his own child or her own child would not be 40 years today, let alone in the ancient world where they're marrying much younger and so on. So let's call it 20 just to make it easy. 12 times 20, oh, hey, that syncs up with when Pi Ramses was in use in the 13th century. And the, so that makes sense of the way the Bible tends to use the number 40. And even uh, additionally beyond that, it makes sense of ancient use of numbers. And this is where you can now see really my view here uh, as I try to give you that now. So in temple dating context, right, dedicatory inscriptions for temples, the, ancient the ancients loved to use round numbers or exaggerated numbers. It's called distance angaben in the German, this big fancy scholarly term no one cares about. But it's about the idea that you look back into your past, you try to find the ideal number because when you build that temple, you did it at the perfect time to the ancient mindset. And so we see this in Assyria where they use the number 16 symbolically for reasons that last I looked into it, scholars still aren't sure why they picked that number but a ton of their temple dedicatory inscriptions just so happened to break down by the number 16. And it's like, there's way too many of these for it to just be a coincidence. Uh, if the Bible is doing something similar with 12 times 40, that would fit the ancient Near East. And we tend to be much more literal with numbers, but I think we might be making a mistake there in assuming our view is their view on these things. And so I think overall the 13th century is able to deal with that other verse in a way that is more consistent. It's just an interpretive issue, not a, you know, someone add it later issue, which to me is more problematic for like inspiration and things like that. So that's the text-based version and then there's all the archeology. span <laughs> Yeah, and, it, and it's, and the folks are gonna wanna read the, the five views just to get into all the data and to see how different people reconstruct that. But I think that's a really helpful framing. Just take two verses, take two positions and then talk about the, the numbers with that. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about some of the um, actual, I guess what we, could, what we would say, arguing that the exodus happened. So you're gonna maybe cite some circumstantial evidence or mm -hmm. like, how would you make an argument for the plausibility? And in a sense, that would be more almost more to apologetic position to somebody who's disbelieving what the Bible says internally, I guess. Yeah, and that's really kind of the heart behind the book is helping Christians, one, understand that there's a lot of data that helps us defend the historicity of the Exodus, although one, one of the views is more skeptical than the others. Even he is like, it just means it's harder to figure out. He doesn't straight up say it's fiction. Yeah, yeah. And then two, help people understand that, you know, when you see a documentary or a blog and they make it look cut and dried, they're just totally ignoring the other half. And it's okay for us to have these discussions and to have the debate, but let's, let's not tell the world what to believe if we aren't going to do the homework, you know? Um, and so, so to that end, plausibility is, is the word I use for it because we don't have definitive proof. And I think even theologically, that might be by design on God's part, right? If we had de definitive proof, where would faith be on a lot of these things we could talk about? Um, so for the Exodus, there's a couple different starting points, but um, I'll just do a few for now. Um, number one is actually Pi Ramses again. Because it was only used for 150 years, if the Israelites were making up the whole thing much later, as that's one of the big reasons to not believe it, why do they know about this city? 
why didn't they just call it Tanis like later parts of the Bible do? The fields of Tanis, of Zoan, right? These are, that's because that's the big city in that region at that point. So the, the, it, that little 150 year range is actually great for us apologetically because it's, it's an authentic piece of knowledge from Egypt that you would only know if A, you really were there or B, you had heard stories from your fathers and grandfathers, and that depends on when it's written. But either way, it, it seems very much an authentic uh, piece of memory there that is uh, historical. And so that little window of time is, is really key there. The other thing I think is really big picture important is kind of Hofmeyer's approach here. I mean, I think he sort of started this. Kitchen, I think, had done some of it too, but Hofmeyer's Israel and Egypt is really about this idea. If we can't find Moses directly in Egypt, or all this Israelite data, which whatever that would even look like in Egypt. What about all the Egyptianisms in the Pentateuch? How do we explain those if again, they wrote it much later or they wrote it in Babylon, they get a lot of Egyptian details right. Uh, the tabernacle is patterned after Egyptian temples, for example. The plagues reference, if not Egyptian gods, at least Pharaoh's inability to keep Ma'at, to keep order, that it is only Yahweh who orders the cosmos, and it's like a whole breakdown of society. Um, even not naming the pharaoh is a really fun one, because doesn't that drive you nuts? Like, come on, Lord, just say his name, and we're done with the chronology debate, right? Yeah, we know the midwives' names. We don't get the name of the, <laughs> the, of the pharaoh, the, the villain. He's just the king of Egypt. <laughs> yeah, and actually, that's keeping with Egyptian practice. Interesting. In the New Kingdom, you will see frequently, almost every time the king goes to war, unless it's a my brother king, like a Hittite, but if it's like a chieftain or someone that's of a lesser you know, rank or whatever, it's just the, the chieftain, the Weru or whatever generic term in, in the hieroglyphs. And so I, what I think is happening here is the writer of the, the, of the Exodus account is using Egyptian new kingdom only naming conventions to name God's enemy, just Pharaoh. Because that rank is that much lower than Yahweh. Then if you go to the next time period of Egyptian history, they will usually give you the proper name of the enemy. So again, it makes it seem like it's got authentic New Kingdom things going. Um, and then let's, I guess, look at Moses too, because he's, he's a central figure, of course, and his historicity is obviously very important to the account. You will hear, especially you know, a few decades back, and especially during the height of minimalist scholarship, that Moses' story, kind of like Joseph, it's just too good to be true. Oh, he's found in a basket, and Pharaoh raises him. Come on. Well, the ancients love their, their baby in a basket story. This happens with most famously Sargon the Great. And yet no one would say, because of that story, Sargon is fiction. So that's already kind of an unfair double standard. And in the New Kingdom, they were very fond of taking foreign children, usually males, back to Egypt after a campaign, the son of the prince or the leader of a city-state, and then training them in Egyptian ways, basically a little academy for foreign diplomacy in the New Kingdom. And then they send them back to rule as a vassal so the locals get one of their own, but the Egyptians get someone who's Egyptianized. So Moses in that scenario, and again, this is well attested in the new kingdom. He's just another foreigner in the palace going to school to be a good little Egyptian leader. Like it's not like romanticized at all. It's actually something they clearly were doing. 
So in a sense, when the um, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, it's not it's not like Moses would have stuck out like a sore thumb in the palace. All of a sudden he was just um, they, she was bringing him in and he just lived with all the other children that were being raised up to be uh, officials in some level. Is that how you're reading that then? And Yeah, I mean, I know it sounds too good to be true on the surface, but there is a host of New Kingdom texts going back to Thutmose the third at the very least where he's bringing back the princes and they talk about the nursery, which is the school that these guys grow up in. It's actually one of the funny things, Prince of Egypt, the cartoon might be embellishing the idea that he's like growing up as brothers with Ramses, but the idea that, that he's in the, in a palace maybe not the palace, but right. Like a government building designed to help train these boys is, is actually not unusual. And so this idea, oh, they hate foreigners. Well, that's the rhetoric. But in reality, they're very clever about trying to use them to make the kingdom run smoother abroad. And Moses would have just been another Semite doing the same thing. And what do we know about the plausibility of um, a, a group, whether it's a large group, and we'll talk, we can get to the number, the big number at some point at the Pentateuch mm-hmm. sites, but uh, what do we know about the plausibility of a large group of uh, Semitic-speaking persons that are outside of Egypt living in the Delta region and then being enslaved and potentially being used as, uh, well, as, as Pharaoh slaves to build these uh, grand monuments and cities? Well, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's funny in the intro, when we talk about Semites in Egypt, when I talk about it in the intro of the book, I say the heading is on this, we agree. <laughs> because even ardent skeptics uh, or people with very different date, you know, dates for the chronology will agree, oh, there's Semites in Egypt in the New Kingdom in the Delta in pretty large numbers. Um, Egypt had for centuries been the place you go in times of famine. So there's another kernel of believability for the Joseph story. And sometimes they settle and sometimes they, you know, they trade and they leave. Like one of my first, ex- my first dig was at Tel El Borg, which is a site, New Kingdom site with a fort on the border of the Delta and Sinai. And we had found eventually this um, residential area that was just a bunch of ash from reed huts. It was really thin, like photographer had to be there because it was going to blow away by the next morning. Um, and some Semitic evidence in the rubbish pit is like, oh, these are probably nomads who came to trade seasonally for a few weeks with the people at the fort and then leave. And then they just like burn it later. Um, and so like, there's plenty of textual data about Semites in the Egypt. The Egyptians lament this frequently. Um, so yeah, there, and then there's, there's grave goods like donkey burials and things like that that go all the way back to right before the new kingdom, even in the Hyksos periods. Asiatic style weaponry in some of the graves. So there's, there's really no doubt Semites were there and sometimes in pretty large numbers on the eve of and during the new kingdom. And then whether they would eventually be put to work like this. Um, I mean, we, we have uh, new kingdom texts that talk about using POWs to build temples and different things like that. So that's not, of course, far-fetched. I mean, slavery, unfortunately, was a common fate in the ancient world, obviously. And, in terms of uh, somebody's listening, like, well, geez, wh- why haven't they found more evidence? Can you talk about, um, at some level, what hasn't even been dug up yet, whether it's in Egypt or Sinai? Like, um, like, because there's some stuff could be underwater in the Mediterranean if it's up in the in the Delta area underwater. But what, you know, talk. Some people are always surprised on how little's actually been excavated. So, from yeah, yeah. So you're on the really ground. There is an expert. So, like, what's um, 
what could still be dug up that could be waited to be found? Obviously, it could also get negative evidence, but I mean, it's potential there's positive evidence waiting to be found still, right? I mean, uh, that could happen. I don't think we want to pin our hopes too much on that, especially no. with how often they'll reuse material when they can yeah. in the ancient world, especially, you know, with, uh, like I said, Pyramids, they take all the blocks and move them to Contier. <laughs> a That's amazing. Finds it and we're like, oh, yeah. Pyramids was like six miles that way. We've got it finally. And then they do you know, magnetometry and they see there's a bunch of stuff under the ground. It's like, oh, this was actually where it was. At any rate, I think what, what happens is um, scholars and lay people alike, interested lay people, pastors, you know, um, scholars too, sometimes have unrealistic expectations of archeological evidence. Yeah. Right, like we mentioned what would constitute proof of Moses existence, like that's already something we kind of talked about, but even knowing more so that, um, this idea that we've done all this work on sites that would relate to the Exodus is really not true. Um, and, and Richard Elliott Friedman talks about this in his book. And I actually disagree with a lot of what he says, but I, I find it's really helpful when you disagree on certain points with someone, but then you also have points in common. It kind of helps your argument because if you agree on these things, then that must be really the case, you know, because we disagree on other in other ways. And he says, essentially, his point at, 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 towards the beginning of that book is people say that we've, you know, done all these excavations or combed the Sinai and not found any evidence, but it's just not true. There haven't been no major excavations in Sinai. There's just been surface surveys, which the name says it all. I mean, those are useful, but it's, it's a tough place to dig logistically, leaving out even the radicalism and the, the modern politics in that region. Just... How, where do you stay? How do you equip your team? Where how do you get enough food and water and, and lodging? And it's just crazy expensive to imagine logistically. So it's one reason it's not been done much. The Delta is going to be one of the few places in Egypt, because that's where the Israelites were, people aren't aware, uh, that would be less likely to preserve monuments. And what are the, what are the Israelites living in? Again, like what kind of house would we say, oh, that one's Israelite versus oh, it's Semitic? Is it, is it even unique from an Egyptian style home? What's it made out of? So it's not as simple as, well, there should be archeological evidence. Um, what, what material culture would the Israelites leave in the Delta? Would it be any different than other, like say Canaanites who might've came coming down to trade? And we know the Semites, that's why everyone just uses the generic catch-all Semites. So without a clear answer to that, the data there kind of is on material culture is kind of mute, right? It's like, boom, they're Semites. That's as far as anyone can go with it. And then kind of one more thing on that archeological point. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Sarah Parkak, but she's a so-called space archeologist now. And mm -hmm. I've known her since my first dig in Egypt as well. It's just fun. She's been on like the Colbert report. She's been all over the place because it's so cool what she does. So she takes satellite imagery that's been released to the public domain from, I think, like the 1960s and looks for features in those photos that are man-made, you know, like a sharp corner. It's just not something nature does really, right? And so she's done all this to identify potential sites, and especially with changing the lighting and all the things you can do technologically now, she's found a whole bunch of sites that are unexcavated. I mean, I don't even know how many, but I know the quote in her book is less than 1% of Egypt has been excavated. I mean, it's not Megiddo where they've been digging for a hundred years, somewhere like Karnak, you know, sure. Or the pyramids. And they're still doing the town next to the pyramids for the workers. Saqqara has been excavated for a hundred years and they just find new stuff. So it's possible to find something. It's also important that we just keep in mind 
despite how much we've dug, we've still not even scratched the surface of everything that ever was there. And so we have to be really careful not to make arguments from silence. And I'll, I'll go to Ken Kitchens saying that I love so much, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And I know that's become kind of famous, but he was the first person I saw saying it. No, no, that was, I was, it's really funny. I was going to ask you about that. Um, cause I, I was wondering what, um, what your take on that is. And, you know, I always liked it for a long time until the, the uh, and again, this isn't a political show, but then uh, the, I, I always used to cite that in class. And then back when the United States was having the battle with Iraq, um, back with mm -hmm. uh, the Bush administration, Dick Cheney was saying when they were looking for the weapons of mass oh, destruction, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said the same thing. And I thought to myself, it's like, oh boy. So like, so what would be the question? And I, and I don't know what the answer to this is, but I, but I, I think a, a question I always raised if, if we, cause it's kind of rhetorical to say, and it's true by the way, I mean, I, absence of evidence isn't evidence. Like it's still like philosophically true, even yeah. if we might yeah. disagree with Cheney's appropriation of it. Yeah. So I guess my question is, ends up being, at what point would absence of evidence be evidence of absence? And that's a hard question as persons of faith. And that's one of the things, and you may not have an answer for that. And I don't even mean to put you on the spot. I don't, but that's, I don't think, yeah. I, I've wrestled with this before, yeah, not necessarily yeah. in this format, but yeah. I, I can go on record and say at least this much. I don't think it would. I don't think, strictly speaking, this is my academic background, I guess, and the philosophy stuff again. I don't think absence would ever convince me. Yeah. Contrary yeah. evidence would would be what we would. I would have to see. That's fair. Um, yeah. So, and I don't. We don't see contrary evidence once we properly understand the text. I think a lot of our problems are bringing modern presentism, like our minds, into the ancient text, sort of uncritically. And then maybe a couple of mistranslations here and there. And now we've got this big problem, but we need to clean up that. And then there is no problem. No, I think that's actually a really helpful answer. So thank you. Um, I thank you for that. Because I mean, that's when you start appropriating stuff. It's like we've already been saying why there's reasons why they're legit. Would it be evidence? And there's mm -hmm. places that haven't been dug up. So I think that's actually a really helpful way to think about that. Well, talk a little bit about um, uh, I was asking about the Merneptah daily before we jumped on. Um, is that still because uh, there's a there's a controversial there's a debate on another potential reference to Israel that shows up in the book is the Merneptah still the, the hard extra biblical evidence for Israel's existence I mean or the earliest extra biblical yeah it evidence still yet. is as far as like a consensus yeah, um, yeah and you'll see Scott Tripling argue for the Berlin pedestal is the one you're referring to yes um, but the Egyptologists that have studied it and a couple of them are you know far from you know Bible thumping. <laughs> attempting to, I mean, they're not even Christians as far as I know. I mean, or if they are, they're certainly not, like their publications aren't apologetic in nature. I mean, it's one thing for Jim Hoffmeyer to say this isn't the case, which I think he's right. But it's another thing when you have someone who's, uh, can I just use the term generically, secular Egyptologist saying, this does not work. He has no axe to grind, no vested interest in Nerneptah beyond getting the text right. And so I'm thinking of Robert Rittner, he's at UChicago, very good Egyptologist. Also, has looked long and hard at that and says it's not that. So um, I think tentatively it probably looks like it's a no. And that means a, a no on the Berlin document, yeah, not the, the not the Merneptah one. Yeah. yeah. And so that would mean Merneptah is still the earliest extra biblical attestation of the word Israel. And still exciting. 
all these years later. <laughs> and, and as an archaeologist, uh, again, you're looking for material culture that backs things up. How, how important is it to have something like Merneptah that that what dates roughly to the end of the 13th century? Uh, Pharaoh Merneptah mentions the word Israel, that he runs into this people group living somewhere in Syria, Palestine. Why is that really important from uh, uh, from the perspective of trying to demonstrate the plausibility of the biblical narrative? How does that really help, um, like you and your work to set up the Exodus? I mean, why does Merneptah really matter when, especially in the face of a lot of skepticism of somebody like, well, you know what, the whole thing's just made up. How does Merneptah really serve uh, um, and, and help um, in historical reconstruction? Yeah, so we, we all know we all have a subjective view and we can't be purely objective. But to the degree that we can, I still think it's noble to try to treat the data as objectively as possible. And, and I try to consider if I wasn't a Bible-believing Christian, what would I think of this? And what I try to do is say, okay, now if I wasn't also sort of hostile, because I think some scholars just are flat-out hostile, some are more neutral, but hostile to the Bible, then you're also losing another ancient text. So if I try to treat all the ancient texts, if I take my theological cap off for a minute and I try to be as neutral as I can, and as a good historian, what you're looking for then, no matter what your religious background or beliefs are, you're looking for collaborative evidence. Yeah. And so what's great about the Merneptah Stila is it places Israel in the land and almost either there or in the Transjordan right around the time that a late date would have had them coming out of Sinai. And again, the chronology, when you get really detailed, is, is almost impossible. You can't pin down like months or anything too crazy usually, although Egyptian sources sometimes do that later. Um, but he runs into them after doing this circuit of toponyms that are well known, right? Gezer, Ashkelon, you know them, and then Israel. So he's kind of like doing this loop as he's going to go back to Egypt now. And so that places Egypt, or excuse me, Israel in the land around 1208. So it's another just nice linchpin kind of moment for us. And so it's like I said, when you're looking for collaborative evidence, if I want to convince someone, I can't just say, well, the Bible says it, so it's true. All right. And so this really helps us say, well, he's got them in the land here. Uh, so they're, they're, they're doing something by this point in the land. It's not that specific, but it, it still helps a lot. That's good. Something you always point back to. Um, one, one more kind of getting in the weeds question from the biblical text that a lot of folks always ask about. Because when we're talking about trying to find the exodus, people think, well, geez, doesn't this Bible say 600,000 men came mm -hmm. out, of, uh, out, of, out of Egypt? And then if that was just the, the men, as one, some interpretation say that might would mean women and children, you have a couple million people. Wouldn't there be something left? So how do you, what do we do with the number in the book of Numbers? That, uh, well, you're right. That number would be, to any archaeologist and ancient historian, would be or is very problematic. Two to three million people could just take over Egypt. And they're definitely not going to have any trouble with the Canaanites. So something is, is amiss here. Uh, and trying again not to be overly technical, but I think our English Bibles most of the time have a mistranslation of the Hebrew term Eleph, which doesn't necessarily always mean thousand. Mm -hmm. right? It can mean clan or like a military unit or even chieftain. So if you have 600 of those, instead of 600,000, then you get a much more believable total, you know, in the tens of thousands of Israelites, still a pretty good sized force, but much less logistical nightmare issues and 
yeah, two million would, would definitely leave something. And again, that wouldn't be a trial at all, any of this, except for maybe feeding them. So I think that's a fairly simple thing, but it's something that sometimes people don't like hearing because it makes it sound like I say, oh, the Bible's wrong. Right. What I'm saying is our translation, I think, probably needs to be cleaned up. Now, some of the more recent ones are like the archaeological study Bibles and things like that will note this and have a treatment of it. Or you might get a footnote that says, or these terms. And remember, our translations aren't the part that's inspired. Um, and so there's, there's, again, good reasons to say this is not as outrageous as it sounds at all. Um, and, and this same word, sorry, I just realized something else that would probably help here. Uh, so, you know, the story of, of course, AI or I, depending on who you're talking to, and Aiken's sin, right? And, and the numbers don't make much sense. There's, there's all these thousands go up there, and then what is it, 29 die? And they're like, oh, right, no, right, it's a tragedy. Right. I'm like, I thought we did pretty well, you know? Well, if it's 29 out of, I'm trying to blank on the exact number now, but let's just say it's 60 or whatever it is, then, then it's over half of your, your leaders or who, whatever, whichever translation is better here. Uh, and now you can see why that's actually a great loss. So I think there's other verses that also suggest that there's something going on with this word that we should really strongly consider. No, that's really helpful. And let me ask you one theological question, and then we can kind of wrap up and I'll ask you sure. maybe for some suggestion books. Like from, from as, a, as a person of faith, um, why does it matter whether or not the Exodus happened historically? What's, what's lost if we couldn't locate the Exodus in history in some ways? Uh, well, if it's just entirely fiction, we lose a great deal. If it's, oh, we just don't understand the numbers or it's exaggerated, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Ancients yeah. tend to do that with some of their stories. But I, again, I still think there's a good reason to believe it as we have it recorded with Bellif being kind of the exception. But if, you, if we claim it's entirely fiction, we have to, there's some elephants in the room here, namely yeah. Jesus talking about Moses. Like That's the first one. Uh, and we, so we end up making him out to sort of be misleading us or even outright lying. And that's, of course, theologically enormous problem. And also the Exodus is the most attested or discussed, I should say, event, not just the Old Testament, but just the Bible. Mm -hmm. and of course, most of that's in the Old Testament, but we lose all the things the Israelites considered foundational and the reason for the covenant, which again means what's the reasoning for the new covenant. So I think the stakes are actually very, very high here for believers. This is not just an Old Testament issue. Once, once you think deeply about the covenant and what it means for the Exodus, because that God brought them out, that's why they have now this contract and their set of obligations after he's already met his and will continue in the future if they're obedient, right? So like we lose all of that, the context for all of that, which I think is, again, an enormous issue. No, it's good. And, you know, we lose, and, you know, I disagree just from, um, I teach a lot of, um, for the whole can canonical, um, teach the whole canon in my, in my role. And, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about the Exodus is it's just, um, <laughs> it punches, I mean, so far above its weight in a sense, the rest of the Bible, you could argue in some ways is a retelling of the Exodus, you know, even like Isaiah does the thing with the exile, I think was mentioned. And then you see Jesus as a new Moses, you have the, um, the whole, Passover relates to the cross. Red Sea mm -hmm. seems to relate to the resurrection. It's just utterly fascinating from a just theological as Moses perspective. Lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the Son of Man be lifted? I mean, it's referenced all the time. And so it's um it's just so it's so interesting. No, I, and I just uh, appreciate that you coming on and talking about this, and just encourage folks again. I'll, I'll hold the book up on the video, but you can look. I'll have the it's they'll be in the show notes. Um, 
five views on the Exodus, okay. historicity, chronology, and theological implications. And uh, Mark, Dr. Mark Jansen is the editor of this volume. And you get to also hear the ideas, not just of his own as he does the editorial work, but you get five other scholars. And it's just a fascinating read. So, you know, Thank thanks you. for introducing us some of that. And just curious now as a, you know, as a, as a, um, a professing scholar, which is uh, so fun to um, meet <laughs> other uh, academics who are, you know, brothers in Christ, um, as, you know, as you look back, um, what what books outside of scripture have you found helpful? Doesn't have to necessarily be now, but have have, have you found found personally helpful that really shaped and impacted your your spirituality and your your commitment to the to the cause of Christ? Uh, so if I go back to younger days, like mid twenties, I think I was like a lot of people. You know, you grow up in a Christian home, you get out of the house, I go to Bible college. I'm still definitely a believer, but I'm starting to wonder a little bit more. You get that question, like, am I a believer because I was born here and now to these people or because there are good reasons for it? And so at the time, the book that helped me the most in that dilemma, again, early to mid 20s is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, which isn't going to be an earth shattering, you know, new revelation to someone that it's a great read, but it's just such a good starting point for people, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, and then more deeply, uh, as far as like apologetics, because I, I, my faith is very intellectual and I mean, certainly the spiritual side matters too, but I, I, I kind of push back against the separation of the mind and the soul and the mind and the spirit of the mind and the heart. And so I'm always encouraged by books that make me, uh, that, that encourage my mind and encourage me to think, oh, this is a reasonable faith or this is true. And William Lane Craig's works, I think are excellent there. Um, now, I don't always agree with some of his more like particular theological stances, but when it comes to like the big picture and creation and defending the resurrection, he's marvelous. Um, and then another one that I thought was just excellent that I only read maybe five years ago. So this would be a much more recent one. Not when I was going through any, any faith crisis or anything, but just I was like, man, this is great. I got to get my undergrads to read this. Was John Sires, The Universe Next Door. It goes through worldviews, and I think yeah. it's a fascinating way to do it because there's a lot of people today that will say, especially in our culture and in Europe, I'm not religious. And so he's like, okay, but everybody has a worldview, whether it's articulated or not. So like, what are the logical outcomes of each worldview? Right. And so he goes through like naturalism, which the natural outcome of a committed naturalist is nihilism. And not to be crass, but the natural outcome of nihilism is just despair. Yeah like even sometimes to suicide, right? And so he, he, he basically breaks down and just goes through, like, if you really believe this, this would be the next step or the consequence of it. And then he talks about theism and he's a Christian, so also Christian theism, but as the one that is both the most logically consistent and the most applicable to living and flourishing as a human being. And he goes through a lot of it. A lot of it is also touching on religions, but he's trying to do it with worldviews specifically. It's a really fascinating read because of that. Yeah, thank you. And uh, and could, do you have a preferred um, history of Israel? Somebody was interested in getting into kind of an update, updated uh, history of Israel that has some, you know, some that's accessible that has some uh, critical stuff. We mentioned the, um, I mean, I, I threw out Proven Long and Longman, a biblical history of Israel. Do you is, I mean, you said you like that one. Is that your preferred one? Do you have a better one that it's you would? It's one suggest? of my preferred ones. The the problem is. Um, a lot of them, I don't find all that accessible. So like if yeah. you're talking grad students, it's a totally different thing. And there's like some really good archaeology introductions and things like that. Richard Hess has, I think, one they just wrote. He's great. Um, the other one I would point people towards 
isn't necessarily strictly a history, but they're definitely accessible and they'll give you a lot of the broad sweeps of history are the, a really good geographic atlas. Oh, that's true. And that's like good. Some of Barry Beitzel's work or Anson Rainey's is, is also good. Uh, again, not that you're necessarily going to agree with everything you read, but they will give you a really nice visual all the time to help, but they also do a ton of work on the context and the other cultures. And then um, I have a bunch of articles coming out in the, and in a work by Barry Beitzel that he's editing for Lexham, the geographic commentary series. I think they've done three already, mostly New Testament, but the Pentateuch one comes out fairly soon. Okay. Um, and those will be, I think, really, really good, really useful for people because it's going to be the geography and the history. And there's like a whole ton of scholars doing the different articles on there. So that's where I would say for accessibility being kind of the key word in that. Thank you. And if, if folks want to get in touch with you in some way, do you have a presence on the web somewhere where you might uh, direct folks? Um, I do have a Twitter, which is just my name, Mark Jansen. It'd be the easy way to Google it. I don't do a whole lot with Twitter, though, to be honest. Probably the best route would be just to uh, use my Gmail, because that one's kind of permanent, I guess you'd say. Just M and then Jansen, J-A-N-Z-E-N, the number seven. Apparently there's other M Jansons. The number seven and then at gmail.com. And then uh, I'm also the deputy director of the Karnak Hive Style Hall project, which actually my wall is the one I work on, the one I lead at the study of is Merneptas. Oh, cool. And it's probably the battle scenes that go with the Israel Stila. Um, and you can check that out at memphis.edu slash hypostyle, I believe. I know you're probably putting that one in the notes because I know we emailed about that one, but. Um, so if you want to check out that project, that's another good way to see what we're up to. Well, and uh, yeah, Dr. Mark Jansen, thank you so much for uh, your time today. Um, I'm always grateful to meet persons that, uh, I mean, literally you're, you're out, you're out digging about for stuff about the scriptures yeah. and you're giving your life to that. So thank you for uh, being a scholar. Thank you for answering, uh, you know, God's calling your life into this form of ministry. And, and, you know, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And anything we can do to, to get the word out is always encouraging to see things like this happening. So thank you again. And thank you, everyone, for listening all the way to the end today on the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be voices of hope to others. Amen. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode to be really helpful, would you share it with a friend today? Maybe email it to them or subscribe to the show or leave a review to help other people find this. encourage you to check out the show notes if you're interested in connecting with any of the recommendations that you heard on the show. And if you're interested in connecting with me, have any suggestions for guests or feedback, email me directly at deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. If you're interested in receiving some information about my forthcoming book on Centering Prayer, I invite you to check out centeringprayerbook.com. And I look forward to seeing you next time.